John 17 is where we find the text for this morning. We'll be giving consideration to verse 1 today. And that's it. Uh, We're going to read verses 1 through 5 because there's a natural break there uh, within this particular prayer. And the title of the sermon this morning and really the title of the series for the next, I think, eight or nine weeks is going to be the Lord's Other Prayer. Lord's Other Prayer. So if you would stand for the honor of reading God's Word together with me, we'll read the first five verses of this text and then we will go to the Lord in prayer. The precious and errant and fallible Word of God says this, Jesus spoke these things and lifted up his eyes to heaven. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself and the glory which I had with you before the world was. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Father, we consider ourselves grateful to even have the opportunity to have your word read, to have it understood, to have your spirit apply it to our hearts, and we are begging you to work this morning. Lord, even through one verse of your word, you are tremendously faithful to work mighty and wonderful things for your kingdom in the lives of your people. So Lord, as we come to you today, we acknowledge that we're broken people, that we have a difficult time having a a continual attention span even, Um, that Lord, that things of this world continuously distract us and we have a lot going on in our lives. You know that we are feeble human beings. So Lord, we're asking for you to do something supernatural here this morning to help us focus upon your word, that we would receive it Lord, it will be used by you to grow us as your people into the likeness of your son, Jesus. We ask this by the work of the Spirit of God and Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Amen and amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So this morning we, we're coming to what's really commonly referred to as the high priestly prayer. In fact, in the heading in John chapter 17, likely in your Bible, if you have headings in your Bible, it says the high priestly prayer. Uh, now, while that title is commonly known as that, there, there are some who actually prefer to call this the Lord's Prayer. And, and I think they have a pretty good reason for calling that. Of course, there is the Lord's Prayer that we know that Brother Bob read for us that's found in Matthew chapter 6 and Luke chapter 11. But, but even though we refer to that one as the Lord's Prayer, really, if you think about it, there's a sense in which it would be more accurate to refer to that as the disciples' prayer. You see, Jesus gave that prayer to his disciples to serve as a model as how we, his children, his disciples, ought to pray. That prayer in Matthew 6 and Luke 11 is for us to pray. In fact, there is a portion of that prayer that Jesus himself could never pray, right? You think about it. Jesus could never pray, Father, forgive me for my debts because Jesus never sinned. Therefore, he never had a need to ask for forgiveness. 
He gave us that prayer to show us how we ought to pray. On the other hand, that does not mean that that the prayer in John 17 does not have any application for us. But it can be called the Lord's Prayer, John 17, because there are things in this prayer which are completely unique to Jesus. There are portions of this prayer that nobody else could ever take upon their list as their own prayer because they apply to Jesus in ways they could never apply possibly to anyone else. Once again, of course, that's not to say there isn't anything for us to learn or glean from this prayer indeed like we see here in the lord's prayer our chief end and motive in praying ought to be like it was for jesus to bring glory to god to glorify god that's why we pray to glorify god and we're certainly to follow our lord's example in this regard this ought to be the chief end of every one of our prayers god's glory But as it applies to the specific details of this particular prayer, some of these things are unique to Jesus. Now, the point for referring to this as the Lord's Prayer, the Lord's other prayer, is not to start up a new trend or start encouraging folks to change the title of this prayer, but really it's to emphasize the unique work and person of our Savior as these things are portrayed for us in this particular prayer. This prayer is unique, and we are going to spend a significant amount of time just seeing how unique it is. And as we approach the prayer, looking more fully, we know that it can be broken up into three parts. We'll have this on the screen for you. There are three parts involved in this prayer. The first part is in verses 1 through 5. In verses 1 through 5, we find Jesus praying for himself. And as we move on to verses 6 through 19, Jesus prays for his apostles and then in the final part of the prayer in verses 20 through 26 he prays for all believers every one of us who would ever come to christ through the ministry of the apostles in the time to come which by the way includes you and i here this morning there's a portion of that prayer for all of god's people Now, I want you to think about the context here, because by way of reminder, this prayer comes to us after Jesus had finished his final discourse with his disciples. Remember, Jesus is heading to the cross, and he starts really in chapter 14 with this really long discourse he's giving to his disciples that we saw the last time we were in the book of John that ended in chapter 16. And and as you gave consideration to all the sermons and all the thoughts we walked through through those three chapters there can be no doubt that there were many things that Jesus had taught them in that long discourse yet I want you to see something what do we find Jesus doing once he has provided them with these lessons with this doctrine look at verse one it says Jesus spoke these things that's the context every one of these things And lifted up his eyes to heaven. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. What did he do after he imposed this doctrine to them? He gave them this gift of these lessons and this doctrine. He prayed. Think about this. After he taught them, he went straight into prayer for them. Church, we would do well to see an important connection here that our Lord makes between teaching and praying for his disciples, for his students. In fact, 
commenting on this relationship, John Calvin says uh, that Jesus holds out an example to teachers not to employ themselves only in the sowing of the word, but by mingling their prayers with it to implore the assistance of God that his blessing may render their labor fruitful. Another place he says, for doctrine has no power if efficacy be not imparted to it from above. Think about this. We must pray for God's blessing to be upon the reading, the teaching, the singing, and the preaching of God's holy word. The Spirit, of course, is the one who must go forward to take that word and apply it to our lives if there be any fruit from it. It's a sovereign work from God completely. But friends, we shouldn't teach and then walk away just pretending that there is nothing supernatural that must occur for that teaching to bear fruit. We must pray for God to send His Spirit to, with His Word that it would accomplish great and mighty things in the lives of His people. When is the last time that after you heard a sermon preached, a Sunday school lesson taught, or, or even a, a, a song full of doctrine sung, that you stopped and you prayed for the Lord to apply that truth to your heart. And not, not just corporately, not just depending upon the pastor to pray, but you said, Lord, apply this. Lord, I need your help. Lord, I'm desperate for the change here. That's what we're talking about. No doubt this can be seen in the example for our Lord. We do well to get into the practice of praying after we have been taught or have, uh, have taught others under us. To pray that what was said and heard would be understood and applied so that we might bear good fruit and bring glory to God. Let me just encourage you here, Sunday school teachers and and leaders, especially even those who teach our children in Awana and extended session in Sunday school to take note of this. As you're teaching our children, don't dismiss them without praying that God's Spirit would be at work even in some of those simple lessons because those lessons are some of the key tenets of our faith. We want our children to know these things at a very early age. So we ask that we would please pray for our children as they sit in your Sunday school classes, as they sit in extended session even, as they sit in, in nursery, as they sit in, in Awana. That we would pray over them after teaching them that God would apply such word. Now, we, we saw that this content of this prayer, as I said, it's, it's unique. Nowhere else in all of Scripture are we provided so much about what our Lord was thinking as he approached the foot of the cross. It's what we might call, living in this day and age that we do, an access to classified information. Being given access to the words of this prayer is sort of like being given a security clearance. An access to confidential material that concerns not only your future, but the future of the whole church. Gordon Ketty says, examining this prayer is like listening in on negotiations affecting us greatly, but in which we have little to say. Like children spying on a conversation their parents are having on moving or purchasing a new house. Or an orphan giving access to the dialogue between the head of the orphanage and his or her prospective new parents. We're given an inside scoop here. We're given a seat into, as it were, a heavenly conversation between the Father and the Son. And there's no doubt that Jesus had a purpose in speaking this prayer out loud. He did that so that others would hear it 
and they would read it. And this, friends, this prayer is a glorious gift God has given to us. It is access into a relationship that is particularly unique. Now let's go ahead and turn our attention to the words of this prayer. We're just going to, there's, there's no points this morning. We're going to take the section by section of verse 1 and examine it. We notice that we're told that first off, Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Now, as you think about all the texts that we have and all the scriptures of, of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, particularly the ones where he's praying, you'll notice that it's not often that we're told about Jesus' posture in his prayer. Here, we're told about the posture of our Lord. It's funny because we associate prayer with what? Bowing our heads and closing our eyes. Even as we're teaching little Bubster how to pray at our dinner table, we, we're peeking at him because it's cute when he bows his head and closes his eyes. And yet, we think about this. This was not the posture of our Lord during this prayer. And we should take note of this. He lifted his eyes up to heaven as he prayed. He also took the same posture back in John chapter 11 of this gospel when he's praying for the resurrection of Lazarus. So why did he take this posture and why is that recorded for us this way in the scriptures? Well, I think by it, Jesus reminds us of the fact that God is transcendent. There's two reasons here. I'm going to give you both right off the top so you'll have time to write them down. The first thing is that Jesus reminds us of the fact in his posture that God is transcendent. We are reminded that he is in heaven and we are here on earth. It reminds us of our need to be humble and to be reverent, to recognize the grace of our God in even taking the time to hear our prayers. By raising our eyes to heaven in prayer, it's also a way of confessing and acknowledging that our help must come from another besides ourselves. That if help is to come to us, that help must come to us from God above. For the one who made all things and sustains all things. By raising our eyes to heaven in prayer, we are confessing that we are dependent creatures who must turn to our creator to meet our needs. So there's a sense in which Jesus is wanting us to see that God is up there and we are down here, but yet even recognizing the distance between God and man is so great, we also recognize that this high priestly prayer, that Jesus is taking on the role of mediator. And so by fixing our eyes upon Jesus, as he's fixing his eyes upon heaven, we see the connection. He is the one who is the, quote, the, the stairway to heaven, which, by the way, is not what that song's about, but he is for his people. It is through Jesus Christ by which we even have access to God the Father, as we looked at a couple weeks ago. It's a glorious thing to see here. Jesus lifting his eyes to heaven reminds us of these important truths. The next thing we'll notice about this prayer is that Jesus begins with the word, Father. Now, that, once again, we might read verse 1 and say, what possibly could we glean from this? Friends, this is, this is amazing to me. Of the 21 prayers of Jesus that are recorded in the gospel, he addresses his Father in this same way each time with one exception, and that is the time upon the cross. He does not say upon the cross, Father, why have you forsaken me? He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the one exception. Every other time we find Jesus crying out to God, it is by using the word Father. 
Now, you might not think that that's odd in any way, shape, or form to see Jesus referring to God as Father. You're used to it. To us, it's no surprise to find Jesus addressing the Father in this way. But I want you to remind you, we we do well to consider the context in which this prayer was first made. Remember what's going on in the time here, among the people of God, among the Pharisees and the Sadducees, with all the religious context of that day. This manner of addressing God as, as Father was particularly unheard of back then. You can look, in fact, through all the Old Testament and you won't find anyone ever addressing the Lord in prayer as Father like Jesus does in his prayers. Uh, Bruce Milne said this, he said, There's no real precedent for the use of this word in addressing the Godhead, whether in Old Testament prayers or in the extensive liturgies which have come down to us from first century Judaism or Qumran. The reason is to hand. Abba, which, which we know is, is the word that comes in the Greek, and we get this word Abba from the Aramaic, uh, Aramaic word in our text. Abba means daddy or my own dear father. It is the tiny child's word of address to his male parents. To Jesus' predecessors and contemporaries, it was an over-familiar and hence unseemly term to use in addressing the Almighty. But Jesus uses it constantly, a significant witness to his unique sense of intimacy with the Father, to which this gospel bears untiring testimony. Think about this. By, By addressing God in this way, Jesus was showing us two things. He was showing everybody his unique relationship to the Father. He, he was testifying that he had a relationship with God the Father like, unlike anybody else. He is that only begotten living Son of God. There is a sense in which he is entitled to refer to God the Father as Daddy. It's a glorious thing. But, but the other glorious thing about this is not, not only Jesus praying using this form of address to the Father, but the fact that he also encourages us to do so think about this when when he teaches us in that text that brother bob read from matthew chapter 6 and luke 11 how does he teach us to pray our father who art in heaven our father who art in heaven you see jesus not only reveals the father to us but he also reveals how we are to interact and address him as our father He reveals to us that our God Almighty is also our Father in the most intimate manner that we can think of. Such that because of our relationship to His Son, that we can also cry out to Him as Daddy. Because Jesus is our elder brother. Remember, we are heirs to the throne with Him, united to Him. We are related to Him. We are the Father's children so we can talk like Jesus and because of Jesus, cry out to God as Daddy. Can I just tell you, there is, to me, nothing like the unadulterated bliss of walking in my door after a day's work and hearing those two little munchkins yell, Daddy. If, you, if you've ever been a father, or you are a father in any way, and you've had that experience, it is pure ecstasy, all right? I, if most of the time, I, I get to stop on my kitchen floor and just sit down and hug these children as they greet me. It's just beautiful. It's joyous. I can imagine the heartbreak when they become teenagers and it stops, right? 
In fact, I'm such a narcissist that I want to kind of walk right back outside and get it again. You know, like I just, come on, daddy's here again, guys. What about this? But this, it's so wonderful to think about that. When, when we have that relationship that they call out to us as daddy or dad or whatever term of endearment you have in your home, it, it warms the heart to hear it. Even when you hear it among children referring to their fathers who are out and about, it is something beautiful and wonderful about that relationship with the father, who's not only the provider, who's not only the head of the home, but, but one who the children feel they can come to and ask for help, to share their burdens with and learn from. It's a glorious thing. But, but think about this. What we're taught here is that in the way Jesus approaches the father and how we can approach him too is in the exact same way. I know it's hard to believe, but God Almighty, the creator of the universe, the holy sovereign God that we are are coming to, this, this God Almighty has showered his love upon you if you belong to him so fully that he would have you refer to him as daddy. Abba, father, He has done this not merely to make it so we should refer to him in the same common language that we use with our heavenly fathers. It is not that we should treat him as just some father figure in our lives. He has done this to show us the depth of his love for us. To show us the depth of intimacy that he would desire to have with us as his children. I mean, this is amazing. Some people might look at this, of course, and and get carried away and abuse it, uh, thinking of God at at a far too familiar level. That's not the point. We are still to come to God in his presence with reverence and awe. This is God Almighty we are coming to. But this same God Almighty is also your heavenly father. He is also your daddy who loves you and will care for you, who will provide all things necessary for you. What a tremendous honor it is. What a humbling thing it is as his people to know he wants us to refer to him this way. To have that type of level of intimacy where we can run in his arms and say, Daddy. I love it. It's it's a tremendous gift. Well, as Jesus begins this prayer, let's continue on. He says, Father, the hour has come. Now, Jesus has, has spoken of this particular term, this hour, before in this gospel. And in most instances in this gospel, he spoke of the hour as having not yet arrived yet. The hour has not come. When we come to chapter 12, though, we, we come upon the first time where he says that the hour has arrived. It has come. Now, of course, by that, he meant the time for his final work had arrived and the cross was near and close at hand. But here in chapter 17, here the hour has literally arrived. Jesus would be hanging upon the cross in a very short time. The hour had come. And from the way that Jesus speaks about the events of his life in relation to this particular hour, we learn that Jesus saw all of his life in all of his actions, in light of the Father's timing and in light of the Father's eternal decree. Think about this. This hour was the hour upon which all creation was waiting for. This was the hour upon which the eternal destination of souls depended. 
The hour when all the types and shadows of the Old Testament would become the substance, would turn into the reality. All of creation, all of history was pointing to this particular hour, and Jesus knew it. This was the very hour for which Jesus came into this world. There was and is no hour again in all of history upon which so much depends. This was an hour that was determined to take place in accordance with God's perfect timing. William Hendrickson said it well when he said these words. He said, the expression, the hour has arrived, shows once more that Jesus is conscious of the fact that for every event in the mighty drama of redemption, yes, and for every event that ever takes place in history, there is a stipulated moment in the eternal decree. I want you to hear this, church. We do well to keep in mind the fact That even in our own lives, there is a time and a purpose for everything under heaven. Everything that happens in our lives happens in the way that God has decreed and at the time that he has decreed. There are times where we might feel the timing is bad, right? There are times where we might even say this is the worst time for this to happen. We might feel that the timing is very inconvenient, but if we truly believe that our Lord is completely sovereign, then we must know and recognize that His timing is always perfect. As difficult as our trials may be, as inconvenient as the timing of the trials may be, it'll be a comfort for us to know that our Daddy knows what He is doing. And He has a good purpose behind it all. Now, I acknowledge that might not give you the kind of relief of whatever pain you might be going through this morning. But friends, it should give you some relief. It should give you some peace of mind to know that your Father in heaven has brought these things to pass at this particular time in your life for some glorious particular purpose. As I've said many times before, when it comes to God's timing, our Lord is never early and He is never late. He is always on time. His timing is perfect. That should be a comfort to us. I pray that we would take comfort in that. Well, Jesus goes on to pray toward the end of verse 1 here. He says, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Now, this is one of those statements that if you unpack, it it should rattle your brain a little bit. And it should... change you notice this unselfish selfish nature of the prayer of our lord consider his petition consider what he's asking he he prays for the father to glorify him now if we stop there we might think that there's some selfishness behind this prayer right but did you notice what his motivation is What's his motivation? His motivation for asking to be glorified his goal his chief end is to glorify the Father. He asked the Father to glorify Him so that for the purpose of He may glorify the Father. You see, the unselfish nature of this request, He is asking God to grant Him the request and by answering Him with this request, God would be glorified. Let, there's something obvious here that, that cannot escape our attention. That Jesus understood His role His chief end as a righteous man was always to glorify his father. That is the chief end of man, friends. 
That is why we are created. That is why we exist. You and I were brought into this world that we might glorify God. That's the chief purpose. The chief end that we have is His creation. And we have so much to learn from Jesus here, don't we? How often do we fall short of having the right motives in our prayers? How often is our main concern for ourselves or for our own happiness without much concern at all in our prayers for the glory of God? Our chief motive in all things, friends, for the church must always be the glory of God. Now, now consider exactly the degree, the degree to which Jesus did this. The worst thing that could happen to anybody or any person could ever go through was about to happen to Jesus. And he knows that this is the thing that will be required in order for the Father to glorify him. He knows that the wrath and curse of his Father must come upon him so he can be glorified by by the Father. Therefore, he brings glory to the Father. But knowing that these dreaded events are right before him, staring him dead in the face, what is his main concern in it all? His Father's glory. Imagine that, church. This, this has to be our position as well. Even when we're faced with impending troubles, when we're faced with the most terrible tragedies before us, even when we know those hard times are coming down the road and they're going to hit us, we need to pray for God's grace to have the right perspective. We need to pray that whatever happens, when that finally does hit us, that God would be glorified in it and by it. Is that your prayers? Is that what it looks like for you to pray? Is that your chief end in your prayers? Just think. Just think about the last ten prayers that you prayed. Where was your motive and heart behind it all? Was God's glory brought in consideration? Sometimes we use the phrase, right? God, that this would bring you glory. But in actuality, is that the motive of your heart? Or in your selfishness and in my selfishness are we often far more concerned about our temporal worldly happiness that we might receive from this prayer. Our temporary level of comfort. And listen, it's not not a bad thing to pray for those things at times. But at the cost of bringing God glory, are we willing to sacrifice those things? Because that's our chief end. Are we willing to say, Father, if I have to walk this road in difficulty, if I have to walk this road in heartache, yes, I'm asking not to do those things, but if I have to, oh, Father, receive glory from such things. May I walk through those things in such a way that it will be glorifying to the name of Christ. Is that the model of our prayers? Oh, how I pray that it is. You see... How wonderful and merciful God is to give us this example in this prayer of our Lord Jesus. Well, as we come to uh, the conclusion this morning, remember 
Jesus knew that the appointed hour had arrived. Remember, he had confessed it and professed it. He knew what was entailed. He knew what was going to happen in that hour. He knew that in that appointed hour, he would wrongly be accused. He'd be beaten. He'd be crucified, ridiculed. But that hour also included his resurrection, his exaltation, and his ascension to the right hand of God the Father. Jesus knew perfectly well that all these things were going to happen to him because the father appointed, the father's appointed hour had arrived. But here's the interesting thing about this. And I want you to see this. Even though Jesus knows all these things are going to come to pass because the father has decreed them to come to pass at his appointed time, what do we still find Jesus doing? We don't find Jesus throwing his hands up in the air and saying, Oh, well, God's going to do what he's going to do. There's nothing I can do about it. Guess I might as well get ready for it and just roll with the punches. No. He doesn't take any sort of stance like that. Dr. D.A. Carson put it like this. He said that God's appointed hour has arrived does not strike Jesus as an excuse for resigned fatalism but for prayer. Precisely because the hour has come for the Son to be glorified, he prays that the glorification might take place. As so often in Scripture, emphasis on God's sovereignty functions as an incentive to prayer, not a disincentive. Did you catch that? I want you to think about this, because this is what happens when we, when we come to know that God is sovereign, when we really rest in the fact that God is in control of all things, that he has an eternal decree, that these things will come to pass, that he has a, a decretive will that he set before the beginning of time and all these things. We think, what then would be the use of praying, right? Why in the world would I ever pray if, 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 if I can't change God's mind, if God is immutable, if he... He has a sovereignty to him. If he is absolutely sovereign in his rule and his way, why would I pray? Isn't what's going to happen going to happen anyways? Oh, friends, think about this. Did did you understand what Dr. Carson was saying there? See, folks, we all know God's sovereign. I I can trust that we know that this is the case. We know that nothing takes place in this life apart from his sovereign will, But knowing this should never deter us from running away from him in prayer. None of this should ever cause us to do anything but run straight to him in prayer. If anything, it should drive us to prayer because, as Thomas Mann put it, prayer is to help on providences that are already in motion. Think about that. Prayer is the means by which God works out this will for our good and his glory. Again, to quote Gordon Ketty, he says, The certainty of an impending event or divine promise removes neither the difficulties that may have to be faced in the realization, nor our need for sustaining strength under such trials. God will be glorified in the means as well as in the ends. And I'm going to leave you with this. Friends, just because there is, in a sense, a certainty that something is about to happen doesn't take away from the fact that we still need the Lord's help to endure it. We we might be on our deathbed knowing our time is short, but just because we know we are about to die, it doesn't mean we shouldn't pray to God for the strength to die well or for the Lord to grant us grace for our hearts to prepare to meet Him. 
Or that he might use our situation to bring glory to himself by drawing others to his kingdom before we part in this life. There's still so much to pray about. Knowing what is going to happen doesn't change the fact that there are still things to pray about and to pray for. Knowing our Lord is sovereign shouldn't deter us from praying as though we're fatalists. We're not fatalists. Rather, knowing He is sovereign, knowing He's in control, it should draw us all the more to the throne of grace. Because we need His help to walk through it. I mean, isn't that the case, right? Every time we, we say God's in control, I, I, God's brought this on a purpose, it's almost as like we're repeating it for ourselves to hear because it's so difficult to walk through. It's so hard in trying to, to take it day by day and to glorify Him in it. We can become fatalists in this way. We say, well, we know what the end is, right? It is appointed once for man to die and after that the judgment. That's pretty much we're all guaranteed in this life. Well, if that's the case... Why would we ever pray knowing that that's our end? Friends, because you need help to walk it out in a way that is glorifying to God. You are in desperate need of the Lord to walk with you day by day through the process of life because your life is not your own. It is hidden in Christ. You identify with Christ, so your life's purpose is to bring honor and glory to Him. And you need help to do that. I need help to do that. Therefore, we must pray for God's help. Knowing that He's sovereign, knowing that it's no accident, knowing that He holds the whole world in His hands, that He sustains the world. But as we walk through the difficulties of this life, you and I are in desperate need of His help. Therefore, we ought to run to Him in prayer so much more often than we do. I pray that we would be a church that prays in this way. That we would consider these things, that we would be reminded that Jesus is our our mediator, that he is the only way we have access to the Father, that we would consider that God is our Father. He desires for us to have that intimate relationship as Daddy, as as our Daddy who loves us and who cares for us. And so we would not be ever deterred because of the fact that God is sovereign from running away from prayer, but we would run straight to the Lord in prayer knowing we need his help each day. I pray that we would take these truths to heart, God would use them to, to shape our prayer lives. Friends, I just want to tell you, we, we have an opportunity. We, we changed up our invitation system, if you hadn't noticed. From, from singing a stanza and, and having me come down and having a response time for everyone to come down to after the service, having people available just to pray. I, I, and I know it's still awkward because you want to get to lunch and you're hungry, but let's think about this. We just talked about how the Lord gives chief instructions to his disciples for four chapters. And then he thought it would be such a good idea that I would pray for the truths that were taught right now. Right after I taught them, I would, I would pray for the truths to be applied. I just want you to know that the altar is open after the service. Your pew is open after the service in our invitation to sit and pray these things for yourself. Because the chances are, really, if we're not continually engaged and we're thinking about what we're doing after this right now, then then we're not going to have any time to reflect or even desire that the truths will be brought to fruition in our lives. 
Stop now and begin to think about ways you can apply this text, this one simple verse in your prayer life today. I want to encourage you. Yes, it's a time for invitation. It's a time for decision with our deacons. But it's also a time for us as the church to pray. To pray for one another. To pray for our help as we walk through this life together. I just want to encourage you as as we come into our invitation time after the service that you would join me in praying this to be true. That I would pray with, with such a desire for God to be glorified above all else in my own life. I want to encourage you to do that as the church. That's all I have to say. I pray your blessings upon, God's blessings upon you now. If you would stand and join your hearts with me now.